It's wonderful to be with you, Harry Fletcher is my name, and uh, we're continuing this series on Christmas on lockdown. What the world would look like today, what our culture would look like had Jesus never been born, had the church of the Lord Jesus Christ also had not been born. What kind of world would we be in? We're looking at it on a positive side. What are some of the great contributions made to the world in which we live as a result of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ? You and I know that uh, for many people, perhaps for most people, this is, as they say, the most wonderful time of the year. They're usually thinking of friends, they're thinking of family, they're thinking of festivals and things of that nature, and we enjoy it all. But I think you would agree with me who know the Lord that the reason we have such great joy was spoken of 2,700 years ago, incredible. 700 years before the birth of Jesus, there was a prophet by the name of Isaiah, and he said, the virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel, as you probably know, means the God who is with us, and that's who this Jesus is. Eugene Peterson put it this way, he says, Jesus moved into our neighborhood, and I thought, boy, that's pretty graphic in it. He left the splendors of glory in heaven, and he moved right in to our neighborhood, the creator fully participating in the life of his creation. I learned a new song last Sunday here at OBC, Josiah taught us, and um, Christ is here, I believe is the actual name of it, but I was thinking of that all week. On the earth, his love has shown we are not alone. Isn't that wonderful? You know, I've been with a uh, dear friend's a couple for the last weekend. He was flown home from Paris and his wife. And uh, she's having surgery tomorrow morning, and they're scared. Doctor looked and said, we got to get in there and take this out. And uh, he told me the thing that scares him the most and the thing that scares his wife the most is that he has to leave her off at the hospital all alone. She's facing surgery. That's not what scares her. Being alone, not having her husband. So the Lord is with us. He is here. And as Pastor Rob put it a few weeks ago, Jesus unleashed to the world. He unleashed the God exalted view of humanity that every person is an image bearer of God with derived dignity. Let that sink in our hearts. Every person in the world is created in the image of God, and he has that derived dignity from the Lord. So Rob challenged each of us at OBC to unleash Jesus on those around us. The topic assigned to me about five weeks ago, six weeks ago, has to do with mercy and benevolence. And they seem to go hand in hand when you think about it. Benevolence is an old word, old English word, and basically it means something that churches and believers have done for 2,000 years is to be kind, to be good uh, to people around them. But then when you add the mercy to it, mercy and benevolence, it has a sharper focus, and it has to do with being good or loving to those who are in distress and need. Mercy always implies distress. 
it always implies great need. So everyone's needy, but there are those who are in distress and especially need to know of God's wonderful mercy. Now, the early church called the merciful, benevolent needs and the acts of uh, the Christian church as the six acts of charity, as you see on the next slide. And they're described by Jesus in Matthew 25. And in particular, Jesus said that his disciples, then and now, you and me, are going to do six things, basically. Uh, We're going to feed the hungry. We're going to give water to the thirsty. We're going to welcome the foreigner. Um, we're going to uh, minister to the sick, we're going to clothe the naked, and we're going to visit those who are incarcerated in prison. Those are the six acts of mercy, but mercy ministry is not limited to those six acts. You might say those are kind of like an umbrella upon which many other things follow, things like ministering to orphans and widows, ministering to the poor, Uh, combating addiction, protection from perceived violence, help in the event of an unplanned pregnancy, an unwanted pregnancy. I was glad that I got engaged in a mercy ministry shortly after I was saved. I got saved a year after I got out of the army, and then I was blessed with brothers and sisters who knew the Lord. And my one sister, Martha, had her burial service three years ago this uh, coming month. But Martha was a great, great Christian and had a great heart. And my brother, Ted, and they introduced me and he said, you know, Harry, uh, there's orphans all around the world and you can sponsor an orphan. And the needs are met uh, in any part of the world for $25 a month. And you know, I can remember exactly that I did not pray about it and I didn't even think about it. I just said, I can do that. And I did it, and I'm so glad I did. And I stayed with that all the way through uh, the, the grown-up years of that orphan. So it was Bob Pierce, it's, the date is 1947, and uh, he was a pastor here in the States, and he was visiting Asia on a few countries, and he met a school teacher uh, from China, and her name was Tina. And she introduced him to this battered and, and um, abandoned child, And uh, the child's name was White Jade. And this Chinese teacher living basically in poverty herself said, knew that she couldn't take care of the orphan. And so she put the the child in Bob's hands and she said, now what are you going to do about it? And I thought, well, that's kind of putting it right to you, isn't it? And he said to her, he says, and he reached in his pocket and he pulled out a $5 bill. That's all he had. And he gave it to her. And he said, I promise I'll be sending that every month from now on from the United States. And that's what he did. And then God used that uh, in his heart to say, well, if there's this one orphan, there have got to be hundreds and thousands, millions possibly all around the world. And God touched his heart. And in 1950, the organization known as World Vision was born. And that's uh, the organization that I had sponsored, an African orphan. Bob Pierce had a prayer, and it's so powerful. Uh, I've prayed it many times, uh, quite regularly. And he said, let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. 
You know, all of us need to pray that. Let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised. He was a man of sorrows. Let my heart be broken with whatever breaks his heart. In 1970, after Bob had parted ways with World Vision, he started a new organization, and this new organization would meet the needs of people who are victims of war, poverty, natural disasters, disease, and famine, and with the purpose always of sharing the gospel of Christ, uh, became known as Samaritan's Purse. And at Christmas time, many churches, Christians are involved in Operation Christmas Child, where they pack a shoebox, and it goes all around the world to these little kids. And my heart be broken with what breaks his heart. Can you imagine seeing a few hundred orphans? I saw them over in Sarajevo. When they get these shoeboxes, knowing somebody loves them, somebody cares, and this somebody is somebody who will never meet this side of glory. But somebody cared, somebody loved them. And so the merciful act was demonstrated. Pierce died of leukemia in 1978. Franklin Graham then became the president, and we know that work is going strong all around the world today. So this morning, I want us to kind of think on two passages of scriptures. Uh, we already mentioned Matthew 25. I was in prison and hungry and thirsty in the sex acts of benevolent mercy. Uh, so we'll come back to that. But I want us to read Luke 4, 16 to 21. This is Luke's first account of Jesus' ministry up north in Galilee. He's been down in Jerusalem, Judea for about a year ministering, but now he comes back to his hometown, and this is the first occurrence. It's a great message for each one of us in ministry, and when I say in ministry, that's all of us, uh, but it's also focused toward those who are, quote-unquote, in full-time ministry. And so we begin reading in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, and by the way, you could also turn into Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, and read these same verses. So it's Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 uh, that Jesus is reading here. And he first came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, of his grace. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he made this amazing statement. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What a marvelous passage of Scripture. You know what's amazing? If you look at Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and just put it alongside of uh, Luke 4, you would find it's almost word for word, except for one thing. In verse 2, he stops in the middle of the verse, and he sits down. Amazing. He didn't finish the verse. We'll touch on that in a minute. What do we see here? First thing is we see Jesus remembering his, his, his spiritual roots. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue. I think Joseph and Mary took him to the local synagogue in Nazareth when, as soon as 
they moved to Nazareth. And week after week, Jesus was going to wend his way and make his way to the synagogue. I'm sure some of the messages were as boring as could be. I'm sure some of the rabbis misinterpreted texts. Remember, at the age of 12, Jesus knew more about the Old Testament Torah and the scriptures than all the rabbis combined because it says they were amazed at his teaching. That's at the age of 12. But it was his custom. It was a good custom. It was his spiritual roots. And I implore all of us not to forget your spiritual roots, the gathering of the body as we can. You young people, when you go off to university, so many are lost. So many lose their way. Children, teenagers, don't forget your spiritual roots. Jesus sets the example. He was asked what portion of scripture he wanted, and he took Isaiah the scroll. And my, he had such reverence for the scriptures. He not only remembered his spiritual roots, but he was reverential to the, to the scriptures at that time, the Old Testament texts. He read from Isaiah 61, but as I said, he didn't finish. Why didn't he finish verse 2? Because he finishes like this. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Remember, he sat down and he said, this day the scripture is fulfilled in your ears. If he read that verse there about the day of vengeance of our God, it wasn't fulfilled in that day. Jesus knew that wouldn't be fulfilled, what? Until the second coming. You see, the prophets couldn't get it together. Peter tells us that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. They searched diligently, he says, they couldn't put the sufferings of Christ in the glory of Christ. And if I'm here in an Old Testament prophet, I'm looking to the future and I'm prophesying, I see a big mountaintop and it's called the first coming of Messiah. Then I see a second huge mountaintop and it's called the second coming. In the first coming, I see a crucified, rejected, uh, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief hanging on a cross. In the second one, I see a glorious king and people from all the nations of the world come and bow and worship him. And they couldn't understand how in the world can you have a crucified a Messiah dying on an old Roman cross as the worst of the criminals, and yet at the same time being the glorious God of the universe. So they could see the two mountaintops, they couldn't see the valley in between. Guess who's the valley? That's you. That's me. That's the church for 2,000 years. Jesus was technical, so exact with the scriptures. Since I'm here, I can say it and not be able to run out of town, I don't think. That may I say Jesus was a dispensationalist. Some of you looking, you have no idea what that is. Just ask Pastor Rob, would you? That'll be fine. Today, this scripture is fulfilled. Jesus remembered his roots. He revered the word, but he knew something was Something else had to happen. If he was going to be an effective minister, something had to happen. And that is he relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself quotes and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me. Christian, your greatest need is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Your greatest need, young person, is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You will not remain pure without it. I guarantee you. I promise you that. Men, brothers, sisters, you will not remain holy without it. You will not be an effective minister of mercy without it. 
the anointing of the Spirit, we would say the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's how he works through us to minister to the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. Dr. Joseph Parker was one time minister of the London City Temple, a great preacher. And he said this to, at a preacher's convention. He said, a young gentleman always preached to broken hearts and you will never lack for an audience. Isn't that true? Why did he say that? Because in every gathering there are broken hearts. They're here. I don't know which heart is more oppressed or broken. They're out in the fellowship hall. They're watching online. Some of just our very hearts are very heavy. And you're thinking, I'm coming. I need something from the Lord. What we need is him, more of him, more of Christ. People are hurting. People are lost. You get older, you think a lot about dying. You think a lot about what it's going to be like on that Last day, that last hour, that last moment, that last breath. I think, what would it be like to die without Christ? What in the world would it be like to know I'm going out in eternity and I don't have a clue about the love of God and the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life? And if you're listening to my voice, whether online or out in the fellowship hall or here, and you've never been born again of the Holy Spirit, I beg you, I plead with you, appropriate the mercy of God. Something just that simple prayer of the publican, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He'll honor that prayer. People, Christians, need the anointing of the Spirit in order to be instruments of the Lord to do those merciful acts of benevolence. Someday our Lord Jesus Christ is going to return and there will be a judgment of those living at that time. If you have a Bible and you have Matthew 25, you'll probably notice a title above the judgment of the nations. That's prophetically what it's called. And it happens at the second coming of Christ to earth, but just before the thousand-year millennial kingdom is established. This is the portion that is fulfilled in Isaiah 61 to the vengeance, the wrath of God. Listen, if you look at the first coming of Christ, what is magnified? Grace, mercy, and love. When you look at the second coming, what is magnified? Power, wrath, vengeance, judgment. So it says in Matthew, and these are Jesus' words on the Olivet Discourse. When the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the holy angels with him. He'll sit on that glorious throne. Most of you are familiar with this passage, aren't you? Somewhat. All those living at that time, he gathers them before him. And he sets those called the sheep on the right and those on the left are called the goats. They are identified, judged individually, but judged within their ethnic group. When it says he gathered all the nations, it's the Greek word ethne from which we get ethnic group. And he looks at the sheep and he says, enter into the kingdom that was prepared for you for my, by my father before the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was naked and you I was in prison, you visited me. The sheep are all disturbed and wondering, Lord, I don't remember ever doing that to you. We know the words, don't we? 
Inasmuch as ye have done it unto, I love these words, the least of these, my brethren. The offscoring, the people rejected, the people at the bottom of the rung. You've done it unto the least of these. You did it to me. The goats depart from me into the everlasting lake of fire. What awful words. I was in prison, you didn't visit. I was hungry, you didn't feed me. What's he saying? You get to heaven by feeding or giving thirst or visiting and you go to hell because you didn't know. He's saying those are simply the outward demonstrations of a heart that has already been born again. And because he's a disciple of Christ, he reflects the heart of his master. Because he's a merciful savior, we are to be merciful people ministering to others in need. Mother Teresa said, I see God in every human being. I've heard some nitwits say that she was trying to ascribe a kind of a spark of divinity or light in every human being. And that's a bunch of malarkey. I'll just use a kind word. She saw what Rob has been teaching. She saw the image of God in dignified dignity passed on. That's what she saw in every human being. I see God when I wash the leper's wounds. I feel like I am nursing the Lord himself. She says, isn't it a beautiful experience? You ever been to a leper colony? You ever seen the lepers? Your first human reaction is you recoil. You want to go the opposite direction. This dear old lady just poured her life into him. Didn't even want to come back home until she died and went to her real home. We are to be the hands of Jesus to those in distress and those in need that need benevolent acts of mercy. The story is told about World War II, when there was a lot of bombing going on over in Europe, and there was a church building in Strasbourg, France, that was destroyed by the bombings. And after the bombings had ceased, the members of the church went to investigate and see what was left of the church. And one of the things that was still there was this beautiful statue of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was up there on the center of the altar so that every time Worshippers would come in, they'd see Christ with his outstretched arms. And then as they looked at the statue more closely, they saw that a rafter had fallen down apparently from one of the buildings and both hands of Christ were torn off the statue. And so there was a local sculptor who was pretty well known and he offered to bring the hands of Jesus back and put new hands on him and he would do it without any cost to the church whatsoever. And so the church leadership took this request and were very thankful for it. But the more they thought about it, they said, you know, we're going to have to reject that offer. Thank you very much. We want people, when they come in now and see the statue of Christ, we want them to see him without hands because that's a message in it. You're the hands. So every time they go into worship, they're reminded, and you leave that church building, you're going, you're the hands of Jesus. You're the body of Christ. There are sick, lonely, or hungry people around us. We are the hands of the Savior. I'm only one. 
but still I'm one. I can't do everything, but I can do something. And because I can't do everything, I will refuse not to do something that I can do. So what are you doing? Lord, let my heart break with the heart, things that break the heart of God. Lord, I'm your hands. You can't minister to everybody. You may not have a burden for those in prison, but you might, yeah, when you say, Lord, let my heart break, maybe God will burden you for the hungry or the poor or the sick or the lonely or the orphan or the widow. And you become engaged in what God touches your heart to do. Let me close the message by taking you to a few places around the world where you're, you're going to see these merciful acts of mercy in a wonderful. We say, what would the world be like today without Christ? Think about this. If Christ had not been born, none of these things we've already talked about so far would have already happened. They'd, the world would be void of them all. So I'm going to take you, first of all, to Egypt. Egypt over in the Middle East. It was on 9-11, I was in town, Estonia, when I got the phone call about what happened back home, and I wanted to go home, but you can't go home anyway. I had been on months-long trip planned in several countries, and I was flying the next day via Nairobi to Cairo, Egypt. And when I went to Cairo, I met with the leaders of the churches from all over Egypt, but we met at Esbekia Church. Esbekia Church is the oldest Presbyterian church uh, in the Middle East, it was founded back in about 1854 by Presbyterian missionaries. And the Presbyterians would always do this. When they'd go and plant the church, they would plant the church. And then next to it, they would plant a hospital, build a hospital. And then on the other side of it, they would build a school. And that was their way of showing benevolent mercy ministry because they wanted to minister to the soul, but they also wanted to minister to the body, hospital, and to the mind, uh, to the intellect schools. And so Esbekia Church had a big, beautiful hospital, and they also had a school next to it. And that's the church that we partnered with. And you had to partner with the church in order uh, to get into the prisons over there. I remember the first time, one of the days I was there, and then I used to build my trip around uh, making sure this day was included. One day a month, they brought all the families of the prisoners of Egypt. They brought them all together to the Esbekia Church, had a big compound. And uh, this was their, their way. And they did it at their own expense because these are the poorest of the poor. Uh, now they have other churches up in now, north and Alexandria, down south in Armenia, what's called Upper Egypt and Suop. But I remember seeing these families of inmates come in. There's another name for them over in Egypt. They're called the garbage people. The garbage people because that's how they got their food. They go to the garbage dumps. You're not going to do that today, are you? You're going to a nice restaurant, you're going home, you're going to order in, you're going to have a deal. They get one meal a month. It's at Esbekia Church. Serve them a good hot meal. Vegetables, fruit, protein. You bring all the little kitties, every one of those children. You look at them, you say they don't have a mom, they don't have a dad at home, they're in prison. You want to just pack them up and take them home with you. And you see the medical people ministering to those. That's only medical care they get. You see the woman with her two little kids. She's got a bag she's carrying. They give them a monthly bag of monthly what we call hygienic necessities. That's what they get for the month. Then they come home, come back the next month. It was such a joy to see this hands-on ministry, hot meal, counseling, medical care, necessities. All done in the name of Jesus. 
feeding the hungry, water to the thirsty, healing to the sick, clothing the naked, ministering to the prisoners by ministering to their families. Do you know how easy it was for me as we concluded that whole day to preach the message on the love of God on John 3.16? When they had seen the love of God through the hands of Jesus, these Egyptian believers loving on these least among you. I'll take you over to Nigeria. It's hard to imagine waking up not having clean, safe drinking water. We wake up the next day and we just go to our tap or most of you buy your water in a, you know, in a case and you open the water bottle. Well, over there in Aquabom prison when I was visiting, I noticed that they had no safe drinking water for the staff. The staff lived on the perimeter of the prison. And then you had the prisoners, about 1,200 inmates who had no medicine, by the way, and no food. But this time they had no water. So what did they do? Well, they'd march the prisoners down about two miles down to the river and they'd all take their buckets and their containers and then they'd bring the water back. And I thought something's gotta be done about this. I don't know what, but something's gotta be done. There's gotta be a way to get water, it's not right. And I was, came back home and I was speaking at a meeting down in Savannah, Georgia, and I had this, these prisoners in the prison on PowerPoint, and I was just telling them the story. That's all I did. And a businessman came up to me afterwards. I never met anybody. I had no idea who he was. But he had misty eyes, and he looked at me, and he says, he just said, you know, it's not right that a human being created in the image of God doesn't have water to drink. It's just not right. He said, what, are, what, what can you do? I said, well, they're working on, have been working on the last few weeks, months on a water bore project. He said, what would it cost? And I said, they said it's going to cost around $10,000 with them doing the labor. He didn't say another word. He sat down, he wrote a check. He said, here's $10,000, get it done. I went back a few months later for the dedication. All the inmates were out in the yard, all the staff, the local chiefs had come out from the villages, all the leaders of the communities, all to celebrate the dedication. If you're looking at that container of the water on the left, it goes up high above, way above the prison walls. So if the prison walls come here, the tower goes up even higher. And at the bottom, you probably can't see it on the screen, but it talks about the water of life that Jesus came to give them living water. You'll laugh at the picture on the right because someone had to be the first person to drink the water to see if it killed you or was safe drinking water. So they said, we nominate Fletcher, the American. <laughs> now, I told you before, I, well, I did, but before we eat I don't, in a restaurant home, we always say a prayer of thanks. But I'll tell you, about 60% probably don't go any higher than the ceiling as I just bow on at random ritualistic, Lord bless the food in Jesus' name, amen. I'll tell you what, I was calling upon the anointing of the Holy Spirit in that prayer. You know, Lord, bring some, bring a miracle of healing water in that container. Yeah, it was easy to preach on the bread of life and the love of God to the Egyptians. Can anybody guess what I preached on at that service? I'm the living water. Ah, uh, you drink from this water, you're gonna thirst again, friend. You're gonna get mighty thirsty, and it's gonna happen mighty fast. But if you drink of the water I give him, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water, and this spake he of the Holy Spirit whom he would be giving. Do you have the living water? Do you know him? 
out in the internet, out in fellowship. He's the living water. Let's go to the United States of America, to the state of Maryland. Next month, there's going to be a march in Washington, D.C. in support of the Right to Life movement. People begging for an alternative to abortion. Abortion is murder. A baby's a baby, a human being from the split second of conception. Not everyone agrees with that. That's the truth. I don't like speaking on abortion because I know every place I speak today there are women who have had abortions. And it's going to sound like I'm condemning it. I'm not. So God gives mercy, regardless of what I've done, even abortion, I can be forgiven. Pastor Rob reminded us that infanticide was almost universal before Jesus was born. Plato, I read recently, said to prevent overpopulation, infanticide was necessary. I don't know about you, I hang my head in absolute shame. And I hear politicians in the USA talk about abortion being legalized up to the point of birth. And then if that baby's born, the doctors and the mothers might have a decision to let the baby die of starvation. That's infanticide. They're talking about the governor of Virginia is known for that. Nobody gives a darn. Massachusetts Senate and House recently rushed through a bill aiming at strengthening abortion rights in our state, which would allow women to obtain an abortion after 24 weeks of pregnancy in cases of fatal fetal anomalies, whatever that means. It means what they want it to mean. That's what it means. It would also lower the age to 16 at which an abortion could be obtained without the permission of a parent. Why did they do that? because of the recent appointments to the Supreme Court and the fear that Roe versus Wade might be overturned. May they throw it out once and for all. And I say, screw precedent. I'd never condone abortion, but I've seen the pain, I've seen the helplessness and the hopelessness of women, young teenage girls, still children, made a bad mistake They have everyone around them, the voice is saying, we got help for you. Planned Parenthood is here. Well, it's possible for me to curse the darkness, but not the light of light, isn't it? Andy Merritt was a student and a graduate of Washington Bible College, where Muriel and I went, and also where I served for seven years back in the 80s. And he wanted to offer a mercy alternative. Andy was a hedonist. He was a narcissist. Never knew anything about Christ. Wandered on our 63 wooded acre campus. And in his own words, he says, I felt a peace that I just cannot understand and I cannot comprehend. Long story short, faculty member led him to Christ. Long story short, pastor discipled him. On to Washington Bible College. Graduated from Washington. Met his wife. And became a faithful pastor for 43 years in Maryland. He was pastoring there when I was not far away, serving at Washington Capitol. I knew nothing about what God was doing in, in and through his life. 
He and his wife, Kathy, had 10 children and 25 grandchildren. They all walk with Christ today, many in full-time service. Most people didn't know it, but back in the 80s, Andy dared to take a step of faith that few would take. And that was unheard of at that time. You didn't get anyone behind you. He started a ministry for women in crisis pregnancies. He ended up either directly working with or training volunteers for more than 500 pregnancy crisis centers throughout the country. Andy wanted those women to see the value and the dignity of a human life that was in her womb. And there was an alternatives to, abor- to, a, to abortion. And while many were judging these women, Andy chose to be an agent of mercy. A person that was very close to him and knew him well, he said this, and I, I quote his words. It was a big step without much support at the beginning, but over 50,000 babies have been saved by that one ministry. Two months ago, Andy was speaking at a pro-life conference down in Orlando, Florida, and he became ill. On October 11th, just a little over two months ago, he died from complications with COVID-19. So, imagine his entrance into glory, into heaven. Hmm. Imagine that. Seeing the Savior. I have no idea what a baby who dies and goes to heaven looks like today. But I'm sure it's glorious. Can you imagine seeing 50,000 in heaven that you were the instrument to save them? Jesus was unleashed upon the world through the act of mercy, giving girls an opportunity to choose life over death. Let's close it out by looking from Egypt to Nigeria to the USA and Maryland and to the world. William was born into a poor and unreligious home. Neither mom nor dad knew the Lord outside of Nottingham, England. It was about 200 years ago. His father died when William was 14. At the age of 15, William had heard about this little Wesleyan chapel down not far away preaching. So he decided to drop in for a service, and he did, and he was converted. And when he got home, he wrote in his diary, he was a diary keeper, and he wrote in his diary, God will have all of me there is to have. The next year, he attended a revival service at Nottingham Wesleyan Chapel, And it was under the fiery preacher of a well-known evangelist, if you know anything about church history. His name was Charles Finney. He was quite emotional, quite a powerful preacher from upstate New York. When young William went to hear him preach a year after he was saved, and he made a lifelong commitment to evangelism and revival, and God burdened him to reach the poor, the sick, and make disciples. He became disenchanted with the disorganized ways of the Methodists, and so he decided God was leading him in a new adventure. And during this time, he met his wife, Catherine Mumford, and they entered one of the most remarkable ministries and relationships in ministry as a couple, kind of like a modern-day Aquila and Priscilla. And about 10 years after they were married, they were ministering on the east side of London to the harlots, to the poor, to the drunkards. And William told Catherine these words, I seem to hear a voice sounding in my ears, where can you go and find such heathen as these and where there is so great a need for your labors? A few years later, he organized a new movement with more structure. And on the next slide, you'll see a picture of him 
where he founded the Salvation Army with General William Booth at the top. He said, while women weep as they do now, I'll fight. When little children go hungry, I'll fight. While men go to prison in and out, in and out as they do now, I'll fight. While there is a drunkard left, while there's a poor lost girl upon the streets, where there remains one dark soul without the light of God, I'll fight. I'll fight to the very end. And he did. And he finished well. Remarkable man. The queen went to his funeral. 40,000 people. He was given the title, the prophet of the poor. Salvation Army serves in about 130 countries with a benevolent ministry of mercy. It's the only charitable organization in the U.S. that offers mercy ministries in every zip code. I'm going to close the message now with this one last story. Wednesday night was a dinner with dear friends of ours. Uh, been friends for quite a few years. And you know, when you do a message, and this message here, I started five weeks ago. Honest to goodness, I have 15 messages <laughs> out of this one. You just have to, you know, keep on. And even after I did the message, had it complete, had it off the printing press, I didn't like my conclusion. I just plain didn't like it. Worked on it, didn't like it. I thought something's missing. So at dinner Wednesday night, we get toward the end of our dinner time, the discussion, and we were talking about the things of God and Christmas, and he says, you know, my heart was moved years ago through, uh, I was using the devotional streams in the desert, and the devotion at Christmas time, he said, just moved me. And then he shared, he brought up on his phone the, the devotional and as soon as he started, I said, that's my conclusion. I said, thanks. Thanks, Bob. That's my conclusion. That's what I've been looking for. The title of the devotion of all things was what? If Christ had not come. That's Rob, Christmas on lockdown. That's what we've been talking about the last three weeks. So the card represents, the devotional represents a clergyman. He's in his study on Christmas morning. The service is going to be coming in a few hours. He's there early and then he falls asleep. And as he's sleeping, he has this terrible, terrible dream that Jesus had never come. And in his dream, he found himself in, the, in his home, first of all, and he's walking around. There's no stockings at the chimney. There's no Christmas bells, no Christmas wreaths. No Christ to comfort, gladden, and save. He walked out into the public street and there was no church. There was no steeple. There was nothing. Back down to his library and in that dream, he looked up into his vast library and every book on the New Testament was missing. Every gospel was missing. He says, and then the next thing in the dream, he heard a, a ring at the doorbell, and he went down, and there was a, a, a little a messenger asking him, please visit my dying. My mother's dying. Would you come? And he hastened with the weeping child. And he sat down, and he looked at his mother. He says, I have something here to comfort you. And he opened his Bible to look for those promises from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but there 
was no gospel. The book ended at the book of Malachi with no birth of Bethlehem, no promise of hope. And he could only bow his head and just weep and wail with her. Two days afterward, he stood beside her coffin and he conducted the funeral service, but there was no message of consolation. No word of a glorious resurrection. No word of a happy, glorious reunion someday. No open heaven. The only message was dust to dust and ashes to ashes. One long eternal farewell. He realized at length that if Jesus had not come, and he burst into tears and bitter weeping in his sorrowful dream, suddenly he woke up. You've, you've done that, haven't you? A nightmare, and then you wake up and you think, Whew, I'm glad that isn't reality. But some of you are living in a nightmare right now, and you're wishing you could wake up and that thing just doesn't go away. He woke up and a great shout of joy and praise burst from his lips as he heard his choir singing in his church close by, O come all you faithful, joyful and triumphant, O come you, O come you to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels, O come let us adore him, Christ the Lord. So let us be glad and rejoice. Christ has come. God is with us. Christ is here. He has come. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So let's remember to pray. Lord, I'm one. Please break my heart with the things that break the heart of God. Let me know what it is to live with a broken heart. Lord, I've got hands. And what a pleasure to be your hands. Can't do everything, but I can do something. Lord, what would you have me to do? How can Jesus be unleashed through me? Oh, Lord, I need your Holy Spirit, his filling, his power. Father, uh, for anyone here that within the hearing of my voice that has never called upon a merciful, loving God to save their soul, to forgive their sins by grace, to be given the gift of eternal life, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He didn't come for the righteous, but for the lost. He didn't come for those who are well, but he came for those who are sick. And Lord, we're so sick. Thank you for the healing, for the cleansing blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Christians, as we know him, Lord, help us in the words of our pastor to be unleashed upon this world. Give us hearts for benevolent, merciful acts in ministry. In Jesus' name, amen.